This podcast is a project of the Massachusetts Cultural Council, a state agency committed to building creative communities and inspiring creative minds. I remind everybody in your, com in your community, the community who supports the nonprofit, that very much like all of our individual lives, the unexpected is going to happen. When you're talking about what you need, always make sure you've got a contingency in there for the unexpected. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Massachusetts Cultural Council. Welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Scott Frazier, Managing Director of the Jose Mateo Ballet Theater, and welcome to the program, Scott. Thank you for having me. We're gonna talk about a really interesting and exciting topic, capitalization. But before we get to that, can we talk about dance just for a minute? Talk a little bit about Certainly. what you're doing at Jose Mateo Dance Theater. So um, my day job is at Jose Mateo Ballet Theater, but I like to be um, involved in the dance community in as many different ways as possible. So I'm a very proud board member at Originations um, and recently um, completed my tenure as the president of the Boston Dance Alliance. Um, for me, um, dance is an incredibly powerful tool um, and specifically my interest in it is all around um, youth development um, which really could um, lead into our conversation about capitalization <laughs> because dance happens in spaces um, and spaces cost money um, so that's a that would be my jump off point so you know it's so the arts are so magical that sometimes we just don't even want to think about the fact that money is a piece of the equation. In fact, one of the statistics we often talk about is that if you buy a ticket to any performing arts event, you've only really paid for about a third of what it costs for you to have that wonderful experience, which means that our cultural nonprofits, like yours, um, have to think about how they bridge the gap between earned income and payroll and heating and expenses and salary and rent and all the rest of it. And we know that um, so many of our cultural organizations uh, really have very little margin for error at budget time. And this was an experience that you faced at the Jose Mateo Ballet Theater and decided, I wonder if we could get a little more, a little more space, a little more comfort. Talk a little bit about that. So it's very interesting. The list of expenses um, that you talked about are things that need to keep the door open today. But there's when you're building an institution, there's this whole idea about how to keep the doors open long term. And we're, when you're doing all of these investments in space, restoring historic windows, adding lighting systems, um, seating systems, dance floors, um, you can come up with the money sometimes, effectively, um, through fundraising efforts to buy them. But they depreciate every year. And if you're not careful, you're going to have another one of these big bills up in front of you and no way um, to really address it. So as nonprofit managers, it's incredibly daunting just to pay the light bills, just to buy the toilet paper, just the, the real um, things that you can't imagine not having to need. But unless you can step back and take a longer view, you're going to find yourself blindsided by the predictable unpredictable. You know, we all know that the boiler is going to blow, that the roof is going to leak, that a bathroom is going to be repair. Um, and you can really, I mean, 
one of the tools at the Cultural Facilities Fund are these biz building assessments. You can even predict what you should be putting aside. Um, but unless you're considering those things as critical to your business um, as the vendors that come after you every month, you're never going to be able to paint the right picture for people to know what your services really cost. And when you talk about 30 cents of every seat, if I think if you put in the capital, the real capitalization less. and depreciation number, the audiences aren't starting um, to cover their costs. And unless we can develop a language and communicate our financial needs effectively, uh, the philanthropic sector is not going to be able to support us because we're not even letting people know what we need. So let's talk about this case in point and how you really approached uh, sort of a capitalization uh, strategy in order to ensure that future generations would have an opportunity to, to benefit from this amazing organization. So we looked at capitalization around two major areas. One was preserving the investment that we had made in the building. The ballet had invested several million dollars in a historic site. And we were watching it depreciate at about $100,000 a year. Most of the things were relatively new, so we weren't being hit by bills. But when we came in, and we've done this exercise, I think three times now, with an engineer and walked through and really thought about what our repair and maintenance bills could be some years down the line, being hit with those would have been really destabilizing for the organization. Simultaneously, we looked at what our um, operating cash flow needs were and what kind of capital reserve would we need to serve as um, an internal line of credit. We've been very successful at raising the building money. We're still struggling um, on um, operating, operating. Um, but we're making headway all the time. You know, one conversation you and I have had in the past, which um, might be a little bit of a surprise for some people, um, well, the solution is an endowment. Your thoughts? So I would, I'm very clear on my opposition to endowments for small and mid-sized organizations. And say why that is. If, if somebody gave me a gift of a million dollars towards my endowment, a, a, a fiscally conservative board, which I hope people have in place, um, or a donor would impose spending restrictions that are probably four or five percent of the corpus. And it would be really annoying to me as a manager to have a million dollars invested and not be able to use more than four or five percent to advance the mission of the organization. Um, I think in nonprofits, I think there's a lot of locked capital that can't effectively be used. Um, we actually, even in building the um, capital reserve funds, um, were really clear that we didn't want any permanent restrictions on the money, that we were asking people to give money to board designated funds that had very clear spending authorizations and purposes, um, but also 
in emergency situations would allow directors to use these capital funds to secure the future of the organization and advance mission. So to put it in a, a slightly different way, um, you're a development director, you're out raising money. If you're raising money for an endowment, you have to raise $100 to get four. Right. Or you could go raise $100 to get $100. And when you're a small organization, that $100 might be what you really need. I, I, would, I would totally agree. Um, and I think people don't understand the cost of managing endowments as well and, the, and a level of complexity that organizations with small staffs just aren't best prepared um, to do. And I actually found that talking to my major donors, both institutional and individual um, donors, they all had personal understandings about, you know, my need for, you know, for flexibility um, in our funding and for control. You know, Ballet Theater has built a board capable of making those decisions, um, financially f responsible, um, and to hamstring the organization um, to only be able to use money in perpetuity in certain ways didn't make sense. My crystal ball doesn't show out 10 years. Um, you know, I'm lucky if I get next year really predicted well. We've actually seen nonprofits go out of business with millions in the bank. And have to figure out how to dispose of it. So that's, that doesn't mean an endowment isn't appropriate in some cases, but when we're talking about small and mid-sized organizations and you're trying to achieve fiscal health and you're on the treadmill and you're, you're trying to get, meet payroll and biting your fingernails at the end of the month and pay the light bill and the utility bill and oh my goodness, the roof leaks, first thing to do is? I think the first thing to do is to remind everybody in your, com in your community, the community who supports the nonprofit, that very much like all of our individual lives, the unexpected is gonna happen. When you're talking about what you need, always make sure you've got a contingency in there for the unexpected. Um, and really be, frank, really be frank about what that is. Many times fundraisers, I think, feel very apologetic that they have to ask for money, your trustees going out, and I think the value that we bring to the world is much bigger than the co contributions that we get already. You might as well tell people what the value really costs. So what do you think, um, at least for this organization, is an appropriate reserve or uh, board-designated fund? So I'll tell you how we calculated what we thought we needed for a building reserve fund. Um, and there are two ways to look at it. One would be just funding depreciation. All your fixed assets depreciate over a, you know, a 5, 10, 20, 39 year schedule. And I'm going to ask you to pause because I've heard the word depreciation a million times. Tell us what that means. So what depreciation means in the most easy comp way to understand is you buy a new car. Ten years that new car is no longer new, it's lost value every year. And if you were 
looking at it from an accounting standpoint and you paid $30,000 for a new car, you would say, from my mind, an accounting mind, is that car cost you all your repair and maintenance, all your gas, plus one-tenth or $3,000 more that you already paid years ago. Um, and you could just deal with that new $30,000 bill the next time it rolls around, or you could start saying, I know I'm going to need a new car even though I just bought one. Let me see if I can save $3,000 a year towards the replacement car. And that's really the concept behind depreciation. So that's the concept you applied to your building. No, we oh. didn't. So. Um, <laughs> We came in and had these system replacement plans. What are the actual anticipated lives of the assets, of the physical? Um, Roof, heating, air conditioning, plumbing. And it recommended a $75,000 annual set aside, which was significantly less than our depreciation. Mm. We try to fund depreciation, which in many ways has allowed us to grow this, but our actual repair and maintenance outlays is right around that $75,000 a year. So we're not digging the hole any deeper, but there's a gap between the seventy-five dollars and the $110,000. So every year we're putting a little more and a little more away. Um, and that was, it was very interesting to size what did we think a, a need would be. And it, you know, the biggest one-time expense, and it was basically roof, roof failure. And that was set at about $500,000. So we decided, okay, let's make sure that we could handle our biggest unforeseen one-time expenses. Um, and the policy, we can use the money for repair um, when it's not in the um, bank in another account. Should I need a, to replace a broken window or you know, it allows that unexpected thing to be taken care of. So um, accumulating this uh, fund or this reserve, um, was that a distinct fundraising a a initiative or, or was it just sort of rolled into the whole annual? No, it was actually a real distinct fundraising initiative and we started with um, a building reserve because we had invested so much in a building and we had so much risk if something happened and didn't really have the way to address it. Um, it was very sexy with funders about five or six years ago. I mean, we were very fortunate to get um, seed funding in the amount of a quarter of a million dollars, which seemed like a fortune to me at the time. Um, and our institutional funders and individual funders matched it within six months. So the building reserve, good shape. Great shape. The operating. Operating reserve is, uh, is a work in progress. Um, we're not a particularly high credit risk. So I've got lines of credit which serve the same function. Those decrease year over year. Um, and I'll tell you, it's been a harder discussion with funders to talk about operating reserves than building reserves. And I think it's a building is concrete. Um, and people have that experience in their own lives. The roof goes, the car goes, you know, that's, that's all experience. It's something very familiar to us. I think the operating reserves are less so. I think many arts organizations have a lot more 
peaks and valleys in their cash flows than individuals do in their lives unless they're hit by the unemployment events but the you know they're for me june is vastly different than december from a financial standpoint so it requires a different kind of management than i have to practice in my individual life you know so, so be more specific about that so in june my income may be twelve thousand dollars in december my income may be a half a million dollars my fixed expenses every month i still have to pay rent i still have to pay fixed salaries um, and it's you know managing cash through those peaks and valleys is an incredibly specific task in businesses that show such seasonality and i think most of our performing arts organizations many of our historic sites um, many of our cultural educational organizations face very very similar um, situations and the younger ones of us and i would say ballet theater is a 31 year old organization is a young one have yet to get ahead of the curve in terms of their expenses so um, basically um, when you're trying to raise money for an operating reserve basically define what you consider appropriate uses of an operating reserve Boy, I think they're very different for every organization, but I th what in theory they should be doing is not covering a structural deficit. They should be used to smooth out cash flow ups and downs. And venture capital? Experimentation? That's in a perfect world. I mean, in my, in, when we're out talking about that and people are really starting to listen about this, risk capital and change capital I think are very different and need to be thought differently for every organization. So we create a lot of new work. There's risk in all of it, but we've embedded that risk in our operating budget. We're contemplating a change in business model where community engagement would be our overarching business that would create a totally different um, need. Revenue stream. Well, and revenue stream, but also, um, I mean, for me, that's an example of when an organization needs change capital. You know, so we look at the capital reserve funds around building, around operations, around risk, and around change. So it's really simple to run these. I mean, and, <laughs> and you know, and that's without having the resources to hire a CFO. You know, that's the other thing. You know, how how are not small to mid-size nonprofits dealing with issues of financial literacy, both on the fundraising side and on the internal side? You know, how are how are they managing that challenge? I mean, I've been in my job for thirty years. I learned by making every single one of those mistakes. You know, nobody, and it's new that, it's new that technical assistance is being offered around financial literacy for nonprofit organizations. I mean, this master's in arts management um, is a, is pretty new. You know, so um, some people say, well, why can't you just run like a business? Well, we do, except we have two bottom lines. One is around 
our profitability and that we're operating like a business. But then there's social value that is every bit as important and we have to measure our impact on both bottom lines. So we talk about what we anticipate being our um, profit for the year and what we would do with that and how we would reallocate it along our balance sheet. Um, but every bit is important and what makes us a relevant organization is we do the same kind of thing around how many people we have to s hope to serve, what neighborhoods are they coming for, coming from, are we meeting a social mandate? So I think I, when I think about my peers, I think of them as people who are incredibly savvy, both business people plus, you know, business people plus a little touch of sainthood in them. Because it's not, it's, to me, in a ride home last week, I was thinking, oh my God, why have I done this for 30 years? There's so many easier ways to make money. There's so many easier ways than, to make money than an arts organization. And why do you? But, you know, why do I? Because I see children thrive. I'm surrounded by music and creativity. And there's a dimension to my life that many of my peers who have jobs that are about making money are incredibly envious of. You know, there's a meaning. There's a meaning. And, you know, at the end of my life, I may say, boy, bad decision. I ran out of money at 75. <laughs> But I think the memories and I think just how rich my experience and my walk through life is, and I think it's from the artists and the learners and the people who are inquisitive and creative, it's unmeasurable. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the economic impact of the arts or the, and I get so annoyed because I think they've missed the forest for the trees. Um, for me, it's the child um, who's just lit up because they've accessed a part of them and are on a lifelong journey um, to parts of us that are more human than the calculus of paying bills. And nobody can do that but the arts. Scott Frazier, Managing Director of the Jose Mateo Ballet Theater, another one of our creative minds out loud. Thank you for having me. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.